Uh, well, we're in a series of messages on leadership, uh, and we're looking specifically at the Apostle Paul's first letter to Timothy. And the question that we're really dealing with is what kind of a leader are you? Are we? What kind of leadership pleases the Lord? So, this morning's question is, are you a banyan tree type of leader, or are you a banana tree type of leader? Which are you? Let me explain. Each winter, uh, Sarah and I try to get out of the winter, and uh, so we go to southwest Florida, and one winter we visited the home of Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, and on their property is the most unusual tree called the banyan tree. Have you ever seen a banyan tree? It's really interesting. Uh, it's, well, here's another one of another country. Um, this one is almost an acre long once we turn the slide here. There we go. Uh, that's just one tree. That's just one tree. And uh, the banyan tree spreads its branches and drops air roots and develops uh, secondary trunks and covers the entire land. Um, birds, animals find shelter under it. It's impressive. It is impressive. And, and nothing grows beneath its dense foliage. Nothing. There's, in fact, there's a, a proverb in uh, South India. Nothing grows under a banyan tree. Nothing. <laughs> All right? So, it's bare. That's a particular leadership story, by the way. The banyan tree. Yeah. Especially when you compare it to a banana tree. Banana tree is just the opposite. Okay? Six months after it sprouts, small shoots appear around it. The beginning of new bananas. A second generation. At the twelfth month, yet another circle of shoots shows up besides the first ones. And so you've got three generations that are going on here, right? And then around 18 months, the very first generation, the starting generation, it bears fruit, delicious, sweet, ripe bananas, nourishing birds, animals, humans. And then you know what happens after that? It dies. It dies. But the second generation of banana trees are now fully grown. And in another six months, they too will bear fruit and die. And six months after that, a third generation does the same. And so there's a cycle. And this cycle continues unbroken as new sprouts emerge every six months. They grow and they give birth to more sprouts. And then they bear fruit and then they die and on and on it goes. And that's a leadership story. That's a leadership story. These two trees represent two very different styles of leadership. Banyan leadership. Impressive, grand, showy, but up close, the ground is fruitless. Banana tree style. And that's not even a pleasant sounding name, is it? Right? But it's a reproducer. It reproduces itself. It gives up its life for future generations. Jesus said, 
like a seed that goes into the ground and dies in order to produce many seeds. What a picture of these two stories. Banyan tree leadership, banana tree leadership. Two styles and two outcomes. And those styles and outcomes reveal themselves in our scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, the New Testament book of 1 Timothy chapter 4. You'll find that on page 992 of your church Bibles. So 1 Timothy is a leadership letter Paul sent to his associate and his son in the faith, Timothy, who's in his 30s about the time this letter was sent, A.D. 64. Timothy was sent to Ephesus, which was a bustling, wealthy, urban city center in the most financially prosperous province of the Roman Empire of the first century. Paul had started a church there about 10 or 12 years before, sometime in the early 50s A.D. And I mean, that church just blew up in size. Life-changing Christ was happening. Networks of house churches begin to blanket uh, this densely populated urban center of, uh, at some estimates, 200,000, which is huge for the ancient world. But then false teaching began to infiltrate and infect these house churches. False teaching by Banyan-style leadership. And Paul sent Timothy to uproot the Banyan trees and plant banana trees. And I want you to see, as I read these verses, how Paul compares Banyan-style versus banana-style leadership. Beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
This is God's word. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4 showcases these two different leadership styles. Did you, were you able to detect them? One of the styles is personality-driven. The other is gospel-driven. One is based on deceit. The other is based on truth. One is based on human effort. The other is based on divine initiative. The one propagates teachings of demons and deceitful spirits. The other professes inspired scripture from the living God, Savior of all people. What I want to do this morning is just look at each style. Paul intentionally puts them side by side for purposes of comparison so that Timothy and everybody else who hears this letter, Timothy is not the only one who's going to hear or read this letter. The churches across Ephesus are going to get this letter. They're going to have it read. And they're going to be able to see the difference between the kind of leadership style that is grand and impressive but leaves fruitless ground Versus the leadership style that in sacrificing itself, it reproduces. And they'll know, they'll know which way is God's way. So first, let's consider the Banyan style leadership. That's in verses 1 through 5. Banyan style leadership. It's, it's this calloused, insincere style that drifts its way into self-deception. Paul had predicted this in Acts chapter 20. Paul had foretold that false teachers would come from within the church. That's what's behind verse 1 when he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. He's referring to what he talked about in Acts chapter 20 when he told the Ephesian elders that from among their own ranks. It's not that it's going to be from coming outside the eldership team or outside the church family. It's going to happen from within their own ranks. This would happen. Acts 20, 29, and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And Paul was absolutely right, wasn't he? Verse 3 asserts that the different doctrine that's being spread, the different doctrine has its origin, look at that phrase, from deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now that sounds creepy, doesn't it? It's October, Halloweenish, ghoulish. And especially when you recall what Paul said about two of the former leaders, Alexander and Hymenaeus, 1 Timothy 1.20, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Sounds like a plot line for a paranormal reality show, right? Sounds like something out of The Exorcist, something eerie. But then you read what the actual satanic deception is in the rest of verse 3. Do you see it? What's the deception? Verse 3. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. That's the satanic deception. Come again. Uh, 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 no marriage, by implication, no sex. And then, you know, no food or no, no types of food. So, so the false teaching that's being spread is that the things in the created world are bad and things in the spiritual world are good. And so your appetites 
like your, uh, uh, your sex drive, your hunger drive, well, they're just dirty, according to the deceivers. And in one scholar's words, the body itself, the physical body itself, is a nauseating nuisance, if not simply evil. That's the deception that's being spread. And so the only way to spiritual holiness is to renounce the physical and the two most powerful drives of the body, food, marriage, and the sexual relations that go with it. So there it is. That's the satanic deception. Does that make sense? Say yes. Okay. All right. So, so I, that, that's the satanic deception. That, that's what this says, right? No food or no food types and no marriage, no sex. Okay. So my question is, and people actually followed these guys? I mean, I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, what's, what's, what's the appeal? I don't get it. I mean, well, what if I stood up here and, and said, church family, I've received a word from the Lord. And from now on, you know, uh, uh, no food, no food types. And I list what those are. And then, you know, no more marriages. And, and by implication, no more sex. So from the word from the Lord, church is no food, no sex. All right? Who's with me? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, and, and those of you who brought visitors for the first time, <laughs> right? Huh? You're leaning over. He's sick. The doctor said that he would be like this if he survived. It's okay. Why would anybody follow this? Here's why. It's, it's, it's not the no food, no marriage, no sex prohibition in and of itself. It's the assumption behind the prohibition. It's the assumption that my worth and my identity and my dignity and my destiny are determined by my performance. It's the assumption that the religious life is possible apart from God's help. It's the assumption that I can make myself acceptable to God by what I do, and I can do it without God. And it's the assumption that my religious performance will somehow obligate God. And it's the assumption that, you know, since I'm the teacher, you know, I've arrived and you haven't quite, or maybe never, and therefore I'm better than you. Look at me, I'm a banyan tree. Impressive, parched ground, no fruit. And all of this in the name of religion. Religio, ligio, ligament, attachment. To attach yourself to attach your identity, to attach your dignity, to attach your destiny to something other than God. And ultimately, the attachment is not to the no food, no marriage, no sex regulation, but to what it represents. It's the idea that, that my attachment to this thing, this in this case, human effort, nourishes me and makes me feel like a God apart from the Lord God. And that, friends, was the original temptation in the Garden of Eden. You will be like God. 
And just as the serpent twisted the truth about creation to Adam and Eve, remember when the serpent said, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God never said that they couldn't eat of any tree, just one tree. See, just these false teachers are twisting the truth just a little bit. They've changed it just a little bit. And then over time, little by little, they've eventually lost their ability to discern truth. They've cauterized their conscience. That's the word in verse 2, whose consciences are seared, seared. The New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, and the word seared is our English word cauterized. Conscience is numb, it's dead. It is unresponsive. And, and now, they, see, they, they, they can't even see truth when it's staring them in the face. They're that self-deceived. That's the way self-deception works. Little by little, until you just can't see the truth. Imagine yourself in a room uh, with walls that are papered bright green. Are you there? You walk into an adjoining room the walls are green, but in this adjoining room, they're just imperceptibly bluer. And then you enter a third room that's just a little bit bluer than the second, and the difference is too small to be noticeable. And then after passing through about 50 rooms, each slightly bluer than the last, someone hands you a sample of the wallpaper in the room where you began, and you are astonished by how green it is. And then you realize that the room you're in is not green at all, it's blue. That's the path of the self-deceived life. That's what's going on here. And that's why Tim Keller, pastor at a church in New York City, once said, self-deception is not the worst thing that we do, but it's the reason we do the worst things. And these verses are about twisted teachers who teach twisted truths in the name of God claiming to say what God's never said and they have no conscience because their conscience has been cauterized and seared and now they're drawing others in their, into their self-deceptive web church family I was thinking about how this really might apply in your situation and then I realized I need to think about how this applies in my situation. Because <laughs> these, verses, these verses expose the dark side of leadership. And especially for those in church leadership. Especially for those, you know, who are pastors. The dark side of pastoral leadership. Because these verses speak of shepherds who have become predators. Pastors who have turned into wolves. And in worst-case scenarios, I'm sad to talk about missionaries who raped the very people they were sent to evangelize. It's dark. And it's a warning. Because leadership is a stewardship. It's a trust. God says that loving Him means loving His people. And failure to love His people is a failure to love Him. And loving Him is a call to truth and light. Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan, to kill sin. So any pretense that sin is tolerable, whether it be through blatant immorality or blatant legalism, 
either infects the church, the body of Christ. Oh, it may look grand, but the ground beneath is barren and fruitless. Banyan tree leadership. Is there a better way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what's behind verses 6 through 16. There is a better way. A way that is disciplined and devoted. A way that masters the truth and lets the truth master your life. And that's the better way. That's that's Paul's word to Timothy in verses 6 through 16. Timothy, master the truth and then let the truth master your life. Paul's words to Timothy here in this chapter are mostly to Timothy. And you can understand why, can't you? You know that, I mean, the leader has to be healthy. The very best gift that a leader can give to those who are, whom the leader leads is health. Emotional health, spiritual health, physical health, the greatest gift leaders can give to those they lead are their own health and well-being, their own walk with the Lord, their own maturity. So that's why Paul says in these verses, and, and, and look at verse 16. In verse 16 summarizes 6 through 16. So let's just get to the summary here. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers from the heresy. You'll save yourself from the heresy, from the false teaching, from self-deception. Timothy, you need to do business with these false teachers, but watch yourself and watch the truth. That's the word. Watch yourself and watch the truth. You don't battle false teaching by mastering false teaching. You battle false teaching by mastering truth. And you get your life and your soul and your mind so tuned. You get your ear so tuned to truth that when you hear something that's off key, well, you know, you know that something's not right there. Something's not right there. And I don't even know what it is that's not right about that. I just know it's not right. Let me think about it. I'll get back to you. Master the truth. That's what's behind verse 13. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Timothy, never come to the pulpit unprepared. Do your homework. Read, study, reflect, pray, know the Word. Master the Word. Learn the Word. Drill it into your head. Read it. Memorize it, Timothy. Timothy, those false teachers are so off base. Abstaining from marriage, denying certain food types. What? What? What are they, smoking a banyan tree? I don't get it. You know, please. That's not really in the original. That's my. Verses 4 through 6. For everything God, uh, created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So, this is a, to reject creation is to reject the creator. Now, God gives instructions or how he wants us to steward his creation, including, you know, food and sexual intimacy. He gives explicit instruction about that. But to deny them, to deny creation, oh, please, Timothy. 
You master the truth. By the way, that's why we have our insight classes here at Windsor. That's why we have, that's why we talk about uh, taking courses with Urbana Seminary. And that's why we have a small group resource room that's just to the room to the left as you go out the glass doors. That's why we have a church library. I mean, these are just a few resources to help our church family master God's word. And verse 6, look at verse 6. Paul says, you'll be a, if you put these things into practice, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And then Paul says, being trained, stop there, circle that word trained. The word literally means nourished. Nourished. Being nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So nourish yourself with God's word. Uh, over the years, I've had folks come to me and say, how can I grow in Christ? How can I deepen my faith? And here is the one discipline, one exercise, one activity. It is guaranteed to grow your faith. Here it is. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Uh, so on your, on your phone, download an app called YouVersion. Y-O-U version, all right? How many of you have done that? I've got U version. Do you have that? Okay, so well, many of you do. That's wonderful. So you, there's a Bible, there are dozens of Bible reading plans on that. And you can read through the entire Bible in a year. You can read through the New Testament. You can read through the book of Psalms. You can read through the New Testament and Proverbs. You can, there's as many different combinations as you would like. And uh, so that's, that's what I have. And that's how I do my Bible reading. And so if I'm... Um, you know, if I'm at the store and uh, they've got to change the cash register tape, I can either tap my foot impatiently or I can pull out my Bible reading for the day, okay? You mean you, it's okay to read your Bible if you're not at a quiet table in nature with a coffee and a notebook and a pen? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Okay, it's okay. All right, just read your Bible. Just read your Bible. Well, what if I come to a section of the Bible that I don't understand, right? Here's what to do. And uh, one of my professors helped me with this because I was really, okay, what, what do I do? Here's what you do. You come to a section of Scripture that you don't understand. Just flip the pages forward until you find a passage of Scripture that you do understand and keep reading. <laughs> what? I know when someone first told me that, it was like, oh, that's... That's pretty simple, isn't it? Yeah, it is pretty simple. Okay, it is. And, and I, why didn't I think of that before? It's okay. It's why you're at school. You know, it's, come on. It's okay. There, there are hard sections of Scripture. There's no doubt. There's, there are hard sections of Scripture. But don't let those few hard sections of Scripture keep you from digesting and being nourished from the sections of Scripture that are, that, that are understandable. All right? That are understandable. If you want to grow in Christ... Read your Bible. Master the truth, Paul says. And then Paul says to Timothy, let the truth master you. Let the truth master you. So, so the, the purpose of reading your Bible is never simply informational. It's transformational. Uh, uh, Paul later says in one of his letters, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So if your Bible reading, if your Bible reading is not making you a more loving person, something's askew. Okay. The truth is not mastering your life. Timothy says, let the truth master you. 
And that's why Paul says, verse 8, train yourself, verse 7 and 8, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Now, circle that word train in verse 7. And I don't know why the English Standard Version did it this way. They didn't ask me. I would have told them. If they... So verse 6, the word train really means nourish. It's a different word for train in verse 6 than in verse 7. I think it's confusing. But So verse 6 means to be nourished. Verse 7 is the word, it's our word, gymnasium. And so you already know the picture, right? There's a workout going on here. And that's Paul's point. Train yourself for godliness. Verse 15, practice these things. And the idea is that you go over them and over them and over them and over them and over them until they become second nature. Until then your training takes over, you see. Uh, like, uh, like Luke Akins. You know Luke Akins? Yeah, you do. He's the guy who on July the 30th this summer plummeted 25,000 feet. He's a skydiver from an airplane with no parachute. No parachute. And he walked away. After a two-minute free fall, he landed uh, in a square, uh, um, a 10,000 square foot, 100 foot by 100 foot net at a terminal velocity of 120 miles per hour, okay? Now, let's just kind of, uh, there he is, <laughs> heaven sent. Let's just kind of, let's just kind of set aside for just a minute, you know, the fact that, you know, he's married and has a four-year-old. Just kind of try to try to park that for aside for just and, you know and his little boy was there, oh, man alive, and there's his wife. She's smiling. She's going. If you ever do that again, <laughs> so just you know set aside the fact that he's married. He's got a four year old. All right, just park, we're gonna park that for just a minute to consider this. Um, so he knew that this stunt would require a ridiculous amount of training. Um, and so, for starters, uh, before he even started training for that, he had logged in over 18,000 jumps, and, and he's 42. Uh, furthermore, he's at such a skilled proficiency level already that, you know, as a skilled skydiver, he trains elite military special forces, okay? And then his preparation involved uh, doing dozens of jumps with a chute, pulling the cord at a thousand feet, uh, opening that chute at the last possible moment, something he had to get special permission for. And his target while training was a 100 square foot instead of a 10,000 square foot target. See? So, and he consistently hit that giving him greater leeway for the full-size net, all right? See, that was his training. Uh, and this is what he said. It's really interesting. He said, whenever people attempt to push the limits of what's considered humanly possible, they're invariably described as crazy. And he's right. <laughs> I'm here to show you that if we approach it the right way and we test it and we prove that it's good to go, we can do things that 
we don't think are possible. So, and some after that may still think, man, you're just a fruit. But here's his point, okay? Here's his point, and here's our point, all right? This has a point. Proper training will get you to places you never thought possible. Proper, and that's true. Proper training will get you to places you never thought possible. And, and with God's help, see, so godliness comes by training, not by trying. Godliness comes by training, not by trying. You know, I don't even go near that heart. I, I don't even go near it. it because, I, it, see, that's, I mean, what, what Sarah, what we just enjoyed for the, just a few moments, do you remember how many hours of training it took for us to be blessed by that? Proper training will get you to places you never thought possible. And if... And if bodily training is of value, and Paul says it is in verse 8, while, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So if, if it's true that bodily training is of value, well, how much more then are spiritual life and godliness? How much more is growing to be like Christ? How much more does growing to be like Christ take intentionality? I think sometimes we get the idea that if I just come to a, uh, an inspirational event, and I'm not knocking inspirational events. Yes, they're necessary to motivate us and, 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 and inspire us, but if you think that's the only thing that's going to grow you into godliness, then we, you know, no, it takes planning, it takes practice, it takes execution, it takes watching your life and doctrine closely, it takes full-scale immersion so that all can see your progress, so that then when they observe you, they can give you appropriate feedback. So that means I've got to be open to appropriate feedback if I'm going to be more and more like Christ. Yes, Randy, this is, this, yes, that was good. Keep doing that to be more and more like Christ. No, don't do that. See, appropriate feedback. And while it's very true that we just talked about, while it's very true that, that people often drift toward self-deception and godlessness, people don't drift into godliness. They don't. Apart from grace-driven effort, people don't drift toward prayer. People don't drift toward Bible study and serving and sharing your story, what Christ has done. And, and if you're leading... If you're leading a department, if you're leading um, a division, if you're leading a business, if you're leading a school, if you're leading a, a not-for-profit, if you're leading a church, you know, you know that, that you know, if you're leading your family, whatever it is you lead, they don't just drift towards vision. They don't just drift towards growth or progress or health or flourishing. They have to be led. There's got to be intentionality. So Paul says, you practice these things, you immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Don't let anyone look down upon you because you're so young. Some of you are leading others who are much older than you. Don't bring your age up. Don't, don't bring it up. Okay? Because it doesn't become an issue until you bring it up. Devote yourself. Set an example 
for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You want to inspire someone? You want to inspire someone? Show them by your life what the life of Christ looks like. And that takes practice. And, and why? why? Well, I'll tell you why. Verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. What a way to live. What a way to lead. So, some of you have been burned by predator pastors. And I am so sorry for that. And you have said, okay, well, I'll check this place out. But you just, you wish, okay, when, when am I going to get burned? When am I going to get disappointed? Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. All right. All, there are only sinners at Windsor Road Christian Church. And the senior pastor is one too. So, there's no one who's perfect. And at the same time, you know, we have an eldership team that loves their senior minister enough to provide loving feedback. And by the way, we're in that season right now where the elders are evaluating, you know, my performance. All right. And, uh, And I feel loved when that happens, even when I receive just stuff that I don't want to hear, <laughs> but I need to hear, you know. So I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad that you're, you know, reconnecting with the church family. Um, and I want you to see that that church family is truth-based. We want the truth to master us, and we want to master the truth. So what kind of leadership do you want now? You know, banyan tree style, very impressive, but no fruit, or, or banana tree style? Do you, want to, do you want to look grand, surround by parched earth, or do you, want your, do you want to give your life for the flourishing of others? Which is it going to be? What do you want? Well, you say, where do I start? You know what? Here's where you start. Here's where, here, here's where you start. Tonight at the Stevens Family YMCA. You get out here on Windsor Road and you go west one mile, the Y is on the left, at 6 p.m. We're going to have our annual Baptism Sunday. And Baptism Sunday is about, verse 10, putting our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all. Baptism is a declaration of hope in the living God. Baptism is an expression of trust in the God of truth. Baptism is being content with being called Nothing else than just a servant of Christ. And I want to challenge you, if you have not taken that next step, that you take that next step. If you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him, if you believe that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, if you believe in the mystery of godliness, God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. If you believe that, if you believe that, then I want you to come up. We're going to sing a song. You come and you take one of these t-shirts here and you take a card and you wear that t-shirt tonight and you declare your total trust in the truth and your total commitment to let the truth master your life. Master the truth. 
Let the truth master your life. Let's stand while I pray.